Today's scripture is Psalm 23, verse 1 through 6, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Uh, welcome to church. Those of you watching online, it's good to have you with us. Um, wow, uh, it's a huge week. Uh, mass shooting in Vegas, uh, snow tomorrow, oh, huge dichotomy and everything in between. Um, I, I think this particular sermon is going to resonate in light of what I think we're going through in many ways as a country, um, but perhaps where you're at personally. I, I tend to think that difficulty in life can drive you into a better understanding of who you are, who you are, or it can just crush you. It can drive you away. Any hope of being who you were before can be completely taken. And so I, I think this is going to be really, really interesting. This we've titled this series "The Anatomy of the Soul." Um, and that John Calvin made an explanation of how he understood the Psalms, that they, they show us every part of who we are as human beings. Um, in a culture today, we live really in a tension between two very opposite ends of the spectrum, actually. There's one end of our culture that says, well, your emotions are everything. They're actually who you are. And so when you can identify and tap into your emotions, you become the most you that you've ever been. Um, the opposite end of the spectrum is more taken from the Stoics, and it, it believes that you really just have to maintain a rationality that's like ironclad. And the sooner that you learn how to detach from your emotions, the more stable and constant your life would be. Now, what's interesting in the Psalms that they show us every, the full spectrum of our humanity is displayed throughout the 150 Psalms that are recorded in our Bibles, but um, they show us every facet of it coming to the surface. And the circumstances vary from Psalm to Psalm. There's a few different authors, for the most part, David wrote the majority of them. Um, but they, they show you this they show you a capacity of a human being to know her deepest thoughts, her deepest emotions, and at the same time, not kind of cream out of control and just spin away. And I, I, I think that this, this particular study is going to be helpful, I, I think, for all of us. Um, when you look at this, this particular psalm, I think that you have to admit that this is, this is widely considered the most favorite of all the Psalms. Um, if you are prone to going to a particular place when 
you're down, this would probably be one of the Psalms. I just read an article this morning, actually, um, from Christianity Today that just said this past week that after huge disasters and mass shootings, there are a number of places that Americans go. And like BibleGateway.com says, one of the greatest searches, there's a number of Psalms, but Psalm 23 actually comes up. Um, and so this, I think this is really going to be kind of an interesting time for us. Um, I think most of us would admit that one of the most, one of the, the most significant aspects of a fulfilling life um, is the ability to experience gratitude. And, uh, you know, but if you take a step back, I, I, I want to just pose some questions this morning. What is the essence of gratitude? What is it? Can, can you even be happy without it? Why is it that we, we kind of, uh, there's kind of an oscillation in our lives where we kind of move in and out, and certainly, uh, you know, we have a holiday dedicated to gratitude and thanksgiving, but it, it surely has to be more than that. And I, I, I hope to be able to show you today that this, there's been an explosion of research on what really makes us happy and what doesn't. And one of the most surprising aspects of it is that it's demonstrated the, there's this relationship between gratitude and happiness. One that I don't, I don't think very many of us really fully understand. But that information is starting to show us more and more. Um, now, I've shared a lot of research in the past on the fact that about 75% of all Americans believe that, that reality and religion either are completely contradictory to one another or there's no meaningful relationship between the two. That's staggering, actually 71%. Um, that's surprising to me because when, when you encounter a trial, if you're among that 71% of all Americans who think that way, to think spiritually or to think religiously in their mind is to be an abstraction of reality. It takes you away. It pushes you into a place that isn't really your life at all. We don't believe that here at L2, and I certainly don't believe that as a counselor or a life coach over all these years. I believe that Christianity was explained in a way that it actually pushes you into your life. It forces you to deal with what you're facing. It will not allow you to just escape. And so there's something about this that I think is going to be really, really interesting. Um, one last comment just in general about our society. At times it seems that these chasms that are opening up between us, are, they're insurmountable. There's no bridge that can, can actually span the chasm. Um, but there's one thing that I think all of us know in that inner sanctum, that place that nobody knows us quite the way we do there, that the one thing that binds us all together is that we want to be happy. There's something about happiness that is universal. It doesn't matter whether you're young or old, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're highly educated or simple. It doesn't matter what country you grew up in. There's something that binds us all together in this quest for happiness. Now, throughout the scripture, there was a kind of a, a concept of shalom that the Jews held on to, and it was, 
It was a sense of well-being in the whole of life. And that, that was their greeting on the, on the street. Um, but it was really to bid a person shalom was to really hope that they might find peace, true happiness in every aspect of life. And so I want us to start by looking at the research on gratitude and happiness before we actually look into Psalm 23. Um, the re- research on grat- gratitude and happiness is interesting. There's been a surge of it in recent years, and it's actually beginning to yield some interesting data in regard to what abs- actually makes us happy and what, what doesn't. As I said earlier, at times I think it's kind of perplexing when you see some of this data because it's exactly the opposite of what you would normally think or naturally think. Um, I think there's two aspects of this that I want to kind of show you to give you some consideration before we kind of press into Psalm 23. And the first aspect is that, that to be happy, you have to be engaged in the moments of your life. You can't allow yourself to be wondering in your mind. So happiness is kind of born out of this engagement. And secondly, the actual re- relationship between gratitude and happiness is starting to be really demonstrated clearly. So let's look at this engagement, the staying in the moment. Um, in 2011, Matt Killingsworth is a scientist that he presented the conclusions of actually a remarkable project that he had done. He, he worked together with an app called um, Track Your Happiness. And throughout the day, they would, they would drive questions to people literally around the world. And the amount of data that they, they captured was truly remarkable. Uh, they captured over 650,000 real-time reports um, from more than 15,000 very diverse people. Um, their ages ranged from 18 to 80. There was a wide range of income, education levels, people that were married, divorced, widowed. Uh, they collectively represented one of every uh, one of every one of the 86 occupational categories from over 80 countries. And so this was an exhaustive examination. And because it captured it real time, it just asked you simple questions. And I'll give you a sample of that in just a moment. Um, but that information, that research project, pushed us into something that made us really aware about this idea of engagement. Um, one of the objectives of Killingsworth's study was to determine whether mind-wandering, um, the unique ability that we have as human beings to have our minds stray away from what we're immediately doing. And one of his main objectives was to really assess whether that produces happiness. Um, when You see, when we're sitting at a desk, we can be thinking about a vacation that we had last month. We can be thinking of a relationship that isn't going so well. We can be concerned about whether we're losing our hair or whether we're gaining weight or how we're aging. Our minds can go to virtually anything. But that seems like that ability would give you the capacity to escape. That seems like it would give you the ability to contemplate or wonder about something that would be more pleasant than the thing that you're ha- actually engaged in. Now, what was really interesting is that that wasn't what the data indicated. This is what Killingsworth said. He said, I'd like to present some data to you th- from three questions that I ask with Track Your Happiness. 
there are three questions. The first one is a happiness question. How do you feel on a scale ranging from very bad to very good? Second, an activity question. What are you doing on a list of 22 different activities, including things like eating and working and watching TV? And finally, a mind-wandering question. Are you thinking about something other than what you're currently doing? People could say no. In other words, I'm focused on my task, or yes, I'm thinking about something else, and the topic of those thoughts are pleasant, neutral, or unpleasant. Any of those yes responses are what we called mind-wandering. So what did we find? As it turns out, people are substantially less happy when their minds are wandering than when they're not. Now, you might look at this result and say, okay, sure. On average, people are less happy when they're mind-wandering, but surely when their minds are straying away from something that wasn't very enjoyable to begin with, at least then mind-wandering should be doing something good for us. Nope. As it turns out, people are less happy when they're mind-wandering, no matter what they're doing. Now, in the TED Talk that uh, Killingsworth delivered on this, he actually said that one of the most unpleasant experiences that we all have today, and this is an increasing annoyance in Denver, is commuting to and from our jobs. And they said that even commuting, when your mind wanders, there's less degrees of happiness. Even engaged in something that you really despise. Letting your mind get away and just kind of contemplate other things, even happier things, your levels of happiness are diminishing in the midst of it. And so we, we learned something from this. This basic information that comes from this research is that happiness is significantly related to being engaged, to contemplating deeply your life and the reality of your life. Now, the second thing that I want you to contemplate before we get into Psalm 23 is this idea of which is causal, happiness or happiness or gratitude, which is causal, which is symptomatic. Now, David Steindl Rast is a Benedictine monk um, who presented what, uh, it was a TED Global talk that was recorded in 2013, and it was titled, Want to be Happy, Be Grateful. And I watch a lot of TED Talks, for those of you that, that, that don't, don't uh, follow much, but I, I, I watch a lot of them. Um, but I was almost captivated by him. He, he's, he's, I don't even know what he was wearing, probably monk stuff. But um, he stood there with his hands, his, his, his hands folded, and he just kind of took these little teeny steps. And he spoke in a way, I swear it's going to come out when I read what he said, because it, it was like mesmerizing to me. Out of all the different talks, you, you know, Dan Gilbert, this famous professor of psychology at Harvard, you know, and all the graphics and all the different stuff that they're showing. And you have this little monk just kind of stepping around in these baby steps. And it, what he said blew me away. And here's what he said in this TED Global TED Talk. He said, there is something you know about me, something very personal. And there is something I know about every one of you, and that's very central to your concerns. There is something that we know about everyone we meet in the world, anywhere in the world. That is the very mainspring of whatever they do and whatever they put up with. And that is that all of us want to be happy. In this, we are all together. How we imagine our happiness 
that differs from one another, but it's already a lot that we have all in common, that we want to be happy. What is the connection between happiness and, grat and gratefulness? Many people would say, well, that's very easy. When you are happy, you're grateful. But think again. Is it really the happy people that are grateful? We all know quite a number of people that have everything that it would take to be happy. And they are not happy because they want something else, they want more of the same. And we all know people who have lots of misfortune, misfortune that we ourselves would not want to have. And they are deeply happy. They radiate happiness. You are surprised? Why? Because they're grateful. So it's not happiness that makes us grateful, it's gratefulness that makes us happy. If you think it's happiness that makes you grateful, think again, it's gratefulness that makes you happy. Now, these two observations I, I want you to factor into when we begin to consider this 23rd Psalm. Number one, if, if you're ever going to have happiness in your life, it's because you're engaged, not disengaged. Those of, think, those of you that think that, that drinking or some sort of medication that is going to disattach your thinking from your life, you're wrong. It can't be sustained. And so you have to be engaged and you have to be grateful if you're ever going to know any significant degrees of happiness. Now, that brings us to this 23rd Psalm. And on the surface, I would tell you that it is the most famous and most well-known of all 150 psalms. That there's something about this particular psalm that resonates so deeply with us. But why is that? I, I, I personally have very fond and very vivid memories of some of the most significant funerals that I attended when I was young. Um, the death of my grandfathers, for instance. Um, and I can remember in almost every single one of those funerals that this psalm was read. I can remember in almost every one of the, those little programs that they hand to you that they sell for so expensive when you, when you have a funeral, but they almost all had the 23rd Psalm printed in it. Why is it? What is it about this psalm that seems to connect with us so deeply? And... Now, what I would tell you that there isn't, uh, the context in which David wrote this psalm is really perplexing to us. We, in spite of all the scholarship and all the research that people have done, we really don't know for sure when David wrote the psalm. Now, the, the main consensus is that he wrote this immediately after he survived his rebellion, the rebellion by his son Absalom. Absalom was a, was a, a unbelievably handsome man, he was brilliant, and he took captive the hearts of Israel, and he literally chased his father David out of the city of Jerusalem. He went on the, he went on the run, and Absalom plotted the murder of his father so that he could become king. And this is the broadest consensus, is that right after that is when David wrote this 23rd Psalm. And so this is a moment in time in which David is thinking very deeply. His mind isn't simply wandering and things are fluttering in and out. You're going to see that there's a structure to what we see here. And the magnificence of it is that it's exactly what the series is about because it, it's this perfect tension of the most 
some of the most passionate and emotional expressions that we find in the whole of the Scripture are contained in the structure of, of a very, very rational gratitude. It wasn't just flippancy. It wasn't escape. It wasn't just trying to ponder things other than what he was engaged in. He is literally thinking over the whole narrative of his entire life. And I think that that's why it resonates so deeply. It was this intense mindfulness that brought him to this. Now, as I said earlier, I'm going to show you this structure. What David is thinking and writing is pushing him into his life. It's not allowing him some escape. Now, I think when you look at the structure, the, the structure actually has five areas of contemplation that I believe provide very significant answers to the questions that we all face from time to time. I think that you could actually structure a pretty profound coaching session around the structure of the psalm. There's five questions. Now, what he writes first answers the question that we ask when we're facing something that we don't quite understand. How can I face this? Now, sometimes these types of events and circumstances come up by surprise, and it's a death of a loved one or a diagnosis from a hospital or from a, from a doctor. And it, it could be a financial reversal of some sorts, and they just spring upon you. But oftentimes, we can kind of begin to look at things, and the question is, I don't know how I'm going to do this. Now, the first two verses, one and two, they express David's acknowledgement that the Lord was both the protector and the, the guiding influence of his life. He uses the imagery of a, of a shepherd, which he would have well understood, because in his youth, that's all he did. And... He understood that imagery of a shepherd's responsibility to the sheep in his care was to protect them, to provide for them. In every way possible, a shepherd was trying to cause the sheep to be calm and to have this sense of well-being when they were in his care. And this is the imagery that David, David uses here. When he, he makes this statement, he says, I shall not want... That's a declaration of provision in his life that he basically saying, I, don't, I honestly don't believe I'll ever lack what I need. I'll never have to be destitute. I'll never uh, be lacking at all. Now, he, he makes two statements that he makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside still waters in verse 2. And both of those are metaphors of literally a lavish abundance a situation and a circumstance that you're engaged in that couldn't possibly be better than it presently is. And so when David, he's answered this question, how can I face this? And what he articulates is this understanding of God's presence in his life to the degree that is anchored in all that he's known up till now, but it anticipates even grander outcomes. The second question that I think emerges from verse 3 is the question, where will I find the necessary strength and guidance? You see, oftentimes when we get into the midst of trial, there's kind of a sense of, of, of devastation. There's a sense of an, almost a diminished energy level, a diminished sense of optimism, and there's confusion in the midst of it. I think in, in verse 3, he actually is speaking to that. Verse 3 is an expression of, a restoration and a guidance that's necessary during seasons of exhaustion and confusion. 
David understood that the Lord had created him to live a certain kind of life. It was righteousness for God's sake. And he knew that God would continue to lead him. There would be, the idea of restoration means to reinvigorate, to cause him literally to be strong again. And he knew that the strength and the guidance that he needed would be there. Now, the third question we see, I think it comes from verse, verse 4. When my back starts to sweat, it pulls this off. Um, the, the third question, verse 4, is how can I face the obstacles I might, might encounter? Now, I think this is the centerpiece of the psalm and the structure, to be honest with you. The, this is uh, uh, that article that I mentioned earlier from Christianity Today. It said that the most searched verse out of this psalm is verse 4. This, even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death thing. And this is a very interesting word, I, concept that he presents here. Is it, it contains an overt expression of comfort. That's what he says. He said, they comfort me. And so that's kind of where he's headed. That's the path or the route that he's on. But before he gets there, he, he makes this statement that's very interesting. Number one, the, the idea of comfort is in the way he uh, expressed it in the Hebrew grammar. It would be, they utterly comfort me, like over-the-top comfort. That's, that's what he's getting at. But when he makes this statement about the danger, it's interesting because most of us would contemplate, even as we would suspect Killingsworth, um, Killingsworth's uh, research, would cause you to say, well, if you want to be happy or you want to be grateful, don't think about the negative things. Almost like we do with children with nursery rhymes. We're trying to get their minds off of what they're afraid of. We're trying to get them almost distracted, but that's not what David does here. What he does is he makes this statement, and the, the way he words it in the English, it, it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of, of death, that's not actually a very good rendering of the original language. The, the literal uh, language read more like this, I walk in a valley of death shade. That's what it literally said. I walk in a valley of death shade. Now what that meant in that, that was kind of a metaphorical uh, saying that pulled into mind, walking through a situation where there were a lot of caves, there were a lot of crags in the rocks that animals or bandits could have hid behind to surprise you and to attack you. And so he says, even though I walk in a valley of death shade, I'm okay. It's a pretty remarkable statement because he, there's this resolve emerging from him to say, I'm not going to let that get the best of me. I'm not going to fear. Now, there's some of you here I know, and I'm not looking at anyone. I don't have any of you in mind particularly. So if you think I'm speaking about you, you're wrong. Um, whenever I say things like this, people say, why, why did you tell everybody about me? Um, so I'm not thinking of any of you in particular. But those of you that struggle with being anxious, even if you have anxiety attacks, there's times where I listen to you explain how it is that it's one particular thing. I knew a woman, now I am speaking about somebody I knew a long time ago, um, but she had these anxiety attacks only when she went to pick up her husband from the airport. And I'm thinking, have him take a cab. It's not worth the anxiety attack. You know, but 
most people, if you've ever suffered from anxiety, they don't know why. There's an obsession with something that becomes so obsessive, it takes, com takes complete control over you. And what David is saying is, uh, is almost similar to what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 when he says, we're taking thoughts captive. Unto, that's 2 Corinthians 10, I'm sorry. Um, we're taking every thought captive unto obedience. And some people say, how do you do that? How do you just stop a thought? And what David is saying is that in, mentally, he's planting his feet, and he's saying, even though I walk through a valley of death shade, I'm not going to let it get the best of me. I'm not going to fear. Because your rod and your staff, they come from me. Now, again, he refers to the metaphor of a shepherd. In there, he's talking, a rod and a staff were the instruments that the shepherd used to thwart off the wild animals that would have threatened the sheep or bandits that would have taken them. The staff was used for correction and direction that he would give. And he says, I know your engagement in my life is enough. I'm not going to let it get the best of me. That's why I think it's the most meaningful verse. Now, that brings us to the verse 5. The fourth question is basically, am I going to be okay? Am I going to succeed? And so the imagery of verse 5 captures this picture of a banquet being set right in the face of all of his enemies, right in the midst of it. David is being seated at a table that he, he now is referring to it almost with a lavish kind of reference. Um, it, one commentator wrote of it this way. He said, they have to look... His, these enemies, they have to look with ill-conceived annoyance at his prosperity to see his table amply spread. His condition, such as men generally envy his wealth typified by abundant oil. You anoint my head with oil. His whole life full to overflowing with blessedness. My cup overflows, he declares, is not only full to the brim, but is overflowing the brim an expressive met metaphor indicative of a state of bliss rarely experienced in this life. And so after he makes this mention of this valley of death shade, he now speaks of like pulling his chair up to a table that is a lavish banquet in the very presence of his enemies. That's victory. Now, the last question, I think, is the one that deeply resonates with us as well, is that, all right, what next? I think it's easy in life for us to survive one storm. It's almost like the hurricane season. Is, no sooner is one gone that we just have this innate sense that there's another coming. We're, we're, it's not done with me yet. And if you don't know that, you will. If you're so young that you haven't experienced like the waves of trial and the waves of adversity that shape and fashion us according to God's purpose, there's more coming. And I think this is why he ends it on the note that he does. And he's really asking the question, well, what, what about the future? In verse 6, his reference to the times of his life actually is referring, in the grammar, it's referring to the past, the present, and the future. And when he makes a statement, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me, is literally rendered, surely goodness and mercy are pursuing me all the days of my life. 
They're right there. They're right there. It's just a matter of time before they touch me again. And it's, he's projecting what God had done in the past into the future, even beyond this life. Now, for those of you that aren't Christians, I get it. I, I, a third of my counseling and, and coaching is with people that, that they haven't been convinced of Christianity. Now, one thing that I think is ironic is when I ask them, tell me what you think the gospel is, I've never once had one of them explain a compelling Give me an, a compelling explanation of the gospel. And I almost always tell them, if that's what it was, I wouldn't believe it either, which really puzzles them. And it's like, what do you mean? It's, it's, I, I, I'll tell them, that's not it. If that's what it is, it wouldn't be compelling to me either. But for some reason or another, they've, they've derived from other people, the messages that they've heard, the perceptions that they've made over the years, is that Christianity is not very compelling. And it, that's really unfortunate because it, it really is. It really is compelling. But one of the most significant aspects of Christianity is that it raises your horizon. Take a single verse out of like Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 11, that God makes everything beautiful in its time. Well, nobody was thinking that on this last Monday morning. When you were all just waking up to the news of what happened in Las Vegas last Sunday night, you weren't thinking God makes everything beautiful in its time. The next clause, he said, God has put eternity in the hearts of men. And that simply means that if you don't believe that there's an afterlife, you're lying to yourself. We know that this life isn't everything. And then the last clause is that yet so man cannot find out what God has done under the sun. Now, it's interesting to me that those three clauses explain the fact that you all believe something. There's a beauty in life that isn't always easily understood. You know that this 70, 80 years, 90 years that you might live on this planet isn't all there is to you. So there's a definition of goodness that might come sometime after you. And the third thing is you can't find out. In fact, in chapter 8, verse 17, he says, even if a wise man says, I know, he doesn't know. God has put such a thick veil between what we're experiencing and what he's really doing that we can't find out. That necessitates faith. So when these things happen, you all believe something, whether you're a Christian or not. You have some sort of speculation, some sort of faith assumption that you use to push into what it is you believe. I actually really do love funerals because it, funerals and weddings are the most significant act of faith that we have in our culture today. Because every one of you is thinking, well, where is she now? If you think she's gone, that's a faith assumption. If you think she's with God, that's a faith assumption. Everyone believes something. What's interesting about this last question is that for David, he doesn't just end with the contemplation of this life. He pushes it into eternity. And as Christians... We're supposed to be thinking like that. That's, that's why you have famous Christians that'll... Um, Jim Elliot was the one that wrote before he was killed and eaten by cannibals. Not a pleasant thought. But before he, he was killed, he said, A man is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's internal perspective. And by understanding things from that vantage point, it makes 
things not so important here. It allows us to act as if there's another day. Now, what is clear, I think, when you take all this together is that David was really fully engaged in a very mindful way with the circumstances of his life. He wasn't mind-wondering. He was contemplating both the good and the bad, the pleasant and the unpleasant, that which was safe and that which was dangerous. What perhaps is not as obvious as that, though, is that his gratitude for his relationship with the Lord was the very foundation of his gratefulness. And that's what made him happy. So if you can't cause yourself to be grateful, you probably will never be happy either. Now maybe the simplest takeaway from all of this would, would simply be, okay, what can I do every day to increase my gratitude? I've asked myself this week as I work through all of this. And sometimes it's simple as just telling someone you're thankful that they're a part of your life. Maybe it's as simple as just being able, like the old song, to count your blessings. Name them one by one. And maybe a simple few moments every morning, every night before you go to bed could completely change your happiness. Even if you have 36 more payments on the same car, 28 years left on a mortgage, maybe nothing has to change on the outside because we can change something on the inside and be grateful. If you aren't grateful, you'll never be happy. All right, let's take a couple questions. Is it insensitive or irresponsible to be grateful when so many bad things are happening in our world and others' world? Why does it feel like you don't care if you don't worry about an issue? I'm not quite sure about that. Um, good question. I'm, I'm not quite sure how to answer it, I suppose. Um, one of the most annoying things, there's a lot of you that in the, in, belong to L2 or part of the medical community, and there's very few things that are more annoying for those of you that I know that work in like the PICU at Children's. There's very few things that are as annoying as a, as a preacher that comes in and tells a family that everything's going to be okay. It's all going to turn out okay. And I, I, I know... Several of, several of you that work in that kind of intense environment, it's almost like, you just need to leave. We've got an unbelievable medical team around this child. She isn't expected to live. She'll never recover her brain function. And you have the capacity to come in and say everything's okay. It's all going to turn out okay. Now, that's not all right. As Christians, that's not okay. We should expect more from ourselves and one another. Because if you're the person that's going to go in and make this flippant platitude, you should just remain silent altogether, I believe. But that doesn't mean that there's a capacity beyond our grasp to see that this isn't all there is to it. Because there is. But we have to learn how to articulate that. We have to learn how to talk about it. Now, many of you know that I, I went back to school this year because I'm 
a glutton for punishment. Um, but the school I went to was actually kind of, it was, it was a little bit new agey, which was kind of annoying at times, but they asked this question that just blew me away. The question was, where is the perfection in this? Where is the perfection in this? And I found that to be a, a, a remarkably insightful question that people don't have a problem with. To say, okay, what, what can I find in this that is as good as it could possibly be? What is it that I find here that I couldn't find any other way in my life? And I, I swear, I worked with 30, 40 coaches as we went through this program, and not a single one of them ever had a problem with that question. Not even once. And just to stop and ask yourself, well, what is the perfection about this? And so maybe you are the one with the cancer diagnosis. Maybe you are the one that is, has irreparable harm done to your financial uh, situation. Or you have a relationship that's falling right through your, slipping right through your fingers. What is it that's perfect about it? I assure you that you can find something. I was blown away as I listened to coach after coach ask that of various people. And the things that they came up with weren't that superficial stupidity. They found real goodness in what they were facing. And so maybe it's a simple question. What, what is the perfection that's in this? Next question. What are some action steps we can take to captivate our thoughts when our minds start to wonder or fixate? I have an old... Henry Scudder wrote a book in the mid-17th century. It might have been like 1664, something like that. It was called The Christian's Daily Walk. And in that book, I think it's on page like 73, there's a, he, he talks about, about possessing your thoughts during prayer. And I, I have found this, both for Christians and non-Christians, to be the, one of the most practical things you can do to stop to, to, let me put it another way, to improve the discipline of your mind because we're not very good at it, I promise. He said that, okay, you start by making a list of the things that you need to do in the day and then you just write them down as they kind of come out of your mind and then you go back and you prioritize them from one to 10, whatever there is. It doesn't have to be a certain number. And he says, then you dispatch them one at a time. Now, what he meant by that old English is that he said you need to think about how you should do those things. And he said, if any of them imprudently barge in before the other one is finished, you need to rebuke the porter of the door, which is your own heart. Now, what I have found is that people can't do that for more than a week without really finding fault with their minds are flabby. They have no capacity to just say, now this, now this, because they engage one thing and they think of something else. And the story I always tell is that we had a brilliant engineer that went here for a long time. He was, uh, he was out at Martin Lockheed. He was a supervisor, in fact. And he came to me and he said, I can't sleep. And I said, well, have you ever told yourself, now sleep? And he got really pissed. Uh, he got really angry with me. Um, and he said, do you know how many degrees I have? And I said, this isn't about, about education. He says, what is it about? I, I said, okay, answer a few questions for me. I said, when you're at work, does your wife call you? And he said, yeah. I said, how often? And he wouldn't tell me. He looked at the floor and I said, no, tell me how often. He said, he said maybe seven, eight times a day. Seven, eight times, seven or eight times a day? And he said, yeah. I said, so every hour she's calling you? He, he said, yeah, it's a bad habit. And I said, so when you're at work, you're thinking of home all the day. 
And he said, yeah. I said, when you're at home, are you thinking about work? And he said, yeah. And I said, that's your problem. He said, what? I said, you're not putting yourself in the moment. You see, this is what Solomon explained, and this is where I learned this out of Ecclesiastes 3. He says, there's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, time to uproot, time for uh, mourning and time for laughter. He goes through this whole thing. And he's basically saying, be then, be there then, and teach your mind how to stay in the moment. It isn't easy. We live in such a frenetic environment. It's so visually impulsive that it just caters to, like, junk food. And so you have to work at this. If you think there's not going to be a simple book you can read, there's not some simple exercise, you're going to just have to be committed to stop your thinking and start your thinking. Be present. And once you learn how to do it, you'll never go back. I promise. So, all right, last question. How is contemplating our future hope and eternity with God not mind-wandering? Well, that's a good question. It depends, I guess. I guess that depends a lot. Um, this last week was the anniversary of my brother's death. So that was uncanny. It happened seven, uh, seven years ago in, in 2010. I had started First Peter, which is ironically, uh, uh, it's all a treatment of suffering. I started it on Sunday, and he was killed on Wednesday. And... I remember I went to my dad and I said, Dad, I don't think I can do this. And he said, no. He said, I think it would be good for you. I'm thinking, yeah, right. You don't have to get up here week after week. Um, but there, there's something about thinking. What is that there? See, you don't have to be a Christian to wonder, do you? If you've lost your loved ones, where are they? See, that, that's not just simply a, a, a mental game, that is a reality that you're dealing with. You have, I remember when my grandmother died, I took all my children up to her casket and I made them touch her forehead to feel that she was not there. Some of you might not think very highly of me for that, but um, I, I'm, I'm telling you that it did something. It shocked them. They didn't know what to expect. When they touched her forehead and it felt like this wood panel. It was like, I asked him, I said, where do you think she is? And they said, she's not here. And there's something about how we connect these things. And being able to say, and I, I kind of anticipated this question in one sense, I think David is pushing into the most mindful contemplation and assessment of his possible life, as opposed to just thinking, oh, I wonder what danger is going to lie ahead. Oh, I'm sure glad God takes care of me. He is very mindful, very engaged, and very grateful. And I believe that being able to say, okay, here's what I believe. This is real. This is how I hold my faith. I, that is helpful. It's not mind-wondering. It's not just being able to think, wow, I wonder if my hair is ever going to grow back. That was supposed to be a joke. All right. Okay, let's, let's be done. Um, good questions, by the way. Um, I, I hope this will be helpful to you, especially in light of what's happened this week. I don't know that you can be a better human being to other people than when you're grateful. I, I don't know that there's another thing that connects you better with other people than when you are grateful. You're grateful that they're in your life. They're, you're grateful for the job you have. You're grateful that your dog hasn't died 
or maybe you're grateful that he did. But being able to be grateful is fun to be around. What's not fun to be around is complaining. It's never fun. It's never pleasant to be around a person that has so many things in his or her life, but they refuse to look at them. It's always something else. It's always only if. It's always, when you ask them how they're doing, it's never, I'm really doing, I'm doing better. There was an old man that used, I loved him. He actually was a contractor here in Denver that my parents knew a long time ago. But every time I asked him how he was, he ended up dying of bladder cancer. But every time I asked him, even when he was dying, I said, how are you doing? He would always get this big smile on his face. And he said, better than I deserve. Every time, better than I deserve. But that's not what we hear. What we hear is not very good. I'm not very good. Well, what is it exactly? Well, I've got this and this. I'm not very good. Be good, okay? Even if you're not, be good. Be good for me. Try to be good for other people. Be grateful. It is sweetened the whole spectrum of your life, I promise. And if you're not, you'll never have anyone to blame but yourself for the people that don't want to be around you. They're not probably going to tell you because most people aren't very courage, uh, have that kind of courage. But it's no fun being around a person that doesn't have any gratitude. And if you think you can do it one day a year, you're a fool. Practice being grateful and see if it doesn't attract people to you. It will. Father, I would ask that these would be moments in which our contemplation and meditation before communion would simply be, am I a grateful human being? How often do I thank you for what's in my life? How often do I praise you for a life in every sense of the word that's better than I deserve? I pray that you would help us to see this part of our lives clearly. Because not only have we lost many of the opportunities, we've squandered them. We need to recover our gratitude. And when we do, our relationships will be sweeter. Our conversations will be more engaging. And we'll finally figure out why people have failed to be around us so often. Help us to be a grateful people. I thank you for this song. I pray that you would use it to comfort our hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening. Thank you.